Welcome to the podcast that will teach you how to successfully invest in and build steady streams of passive income from the highly lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. Veteran real estate investors Kevin Bupp and Charles Dehart from Mobile Home Park Academy will personally share with you the valuable lessons they've learned along their journey as mobile home park investors so that you too can learn how to build massive cash flow and huge profits from this extremely lucrative niche. So without further ado, let's welcome your hosts for today's show, Kevin Bupp and Charles Dehart. Hey guys, Kevin Bupp here from the Mobile Home Park Academy. In today's show, we're going to be covering the second part of our series with private water and sewer expert, Philip Merrill from Merrill Water Systems. Even if you never plan on owning a park that has private utilities, you still owe it to yourself to learn the ins and the outs of private water and sewer systems. As there are a lot of parks out there that you'll run across during your searches that might not be on public water and sewer, but they may offer an incredible opportunity for the person who understands how to properly evaluate these types of systems. So get comfortable and get your notepad ready as we dive deep into private water and sewer systems. So well, what do we need to know, Philip, about package plants? And I know there's um, different types of them, but just give me the uh, give me the the ten thousand foot view, I guess, initially, and then we can dive a little deeper. Okay, so package plants, you're basically it's what we call an activated sludge process. So essentially, all you're doing is you're growing microbes, uh, you know, thousands of pounds of microbes, and all these microbes are consuming. Uh, all the organic matter and nutrients, well, hopefully a good portion of it anyway, that you're sending to them. So basically, the activated sludge process is these microbes are naturally occurring in your waste. So you're basically growing what is already there, and you're basically souping it way up in the sense that you're providing oxygen to them and a food source, which is the wastewater, and then they grow and grow, and they... They basically multiply, and as they're eating the food source, they kind of emit a slime, and then they all clump together. And then you basically keep recycling those microbes, and they do all the work for you. So you're basically, you're just growing bugs is really what it's all about. Okay. And there's a lot of different components, but the basic idea is you're growing bugs, and you've got to keep the bugs happy. And in order to keep the bugs happy, you know, it requires quite a bit of oversight. Okay. That's the 10,000-foot level of what's taking place. Okay. And I know that some of the big concerns that we've come across, uh, again, this is just uh, um, out of ignorance of our own because we just don't know until we talk to someone that's an expert like yourself. But we look at a lot of parks, and, you know, we've always heard that there's a life expectancy of, you know, 30 to 50 years on, on package plants. And it seems like most of the parks we look at, that have package plants, it's, they should be nearing failure based on the life expectancy because they're, they're in their 40 or 50th year of operation. And is it a ticking time bomb at that point in time is kind of what goes through my mind. So can you speak to that a little bit? So the beauty of the package plant is it's generally a small footprint, self-contained unit that does the complete treatment of your wastewater. So they're usually either made out of steel or cement, uh, basically basins, which your different uh, activities take place in, you know, whether it's aerating the sludge to grow the microbes or settling or chlorination. More or less, you just have different chambers made out of steel or cement. And the beauty of the package plant is it's small footprint. Typically, they're trucked in on a truck and they're offloaded and they're ready to go. The drawback is there's no redundancy, um, and the poop keeps flowing around the clock. So if there's something that really is significantly wrong and needs to be replaced, you don't have anywhere to divert your wastewater flow while you fix it. So there's very little redundancy in most package plants, and that's the downfall from the sense of, when the system's getting ready to fail, you just put a whole new pa- package plant in and drop it next to it and switch over. Mm. If there was redundancy, you could fix it as you're going, and the cost would be significantly less. Mm-hmm. So the steel, the sewer environment is, you know, very corrosive. It's hard on cement. It's hard on steel. 
uh, you know, that typical 30 to 50 year lifespan is pretty much what you see out there. Okay. So that's, that's the big catch is when you have to bring in the whole new package plan, you know, it's $500,000, to replace the whole enchilada at once. Have you, in your experience, seen any, uh, whether it be park operators or other in, in other lines of housing, uh, buy into a, a project to where there was a package plant and it failed shortly thereafter? Uh, right after purchase? Yes. Well, or, or shortly thereafter to where there was a big capital expense uh, that, that occurred. Well, yeah, that does happen. And usually... What happens is you do your due diligence, you purchase the the park, and then it it usually the system doesn't catastrophically fail. It's just all of a sudden you're unable to meet uh, the conditions of your permit, mm-hmm. and that could be from you know you did you, you bought the park in the summer when it's not raining, and then in the winter it rains and you're collection system has lots and lots of cracks in it so you're getting two to three times the flow of what it's doing in the summer Mm. and the park the package plant wasn't designed for that flow it was designed for the summer flow and it was most likely designed when all the collection pipes were new and tight so i know when we get down to the pipe section of what we're going to talk about we're going to talk about, you know, the intrusion and infiltration. and But really, you know, that can be a significant uh, issue that the plant just wasn't designed to handle the flow that happens when it rains. Okay. Um, and assuming so, that we're looking at a park that's got a, a package plant, whether it's got steel basins or cement, we should be able to hire, uh, obviously there's already probably a licensed operator that's operating the system, but we would want to get a third-party perspective. But that third-party uh, expert should be able to give us some kind of ballpark range of what's, what's, what's left in the life of this, uh, the overall system, correct or, or no? Yeah, the systems, it's nothing really rocket science. Um, okay. it's, you know, you've got tanks, you've got some pumps, and you have aeration equipment. And you may have some screening equipment and clarifier. So it's pretty much you can look at it and see what kind of state it's in generally. Um, Okay. So, you know, whether that's an operator or an engineer or somebody familiar with the business, uh, just looking over the system and seeing what kind of uh, water they're making, whether it's good quality or you're basically, you know, at or exceeding your permit limits, you know, you should be able to get a pretty good feel of how the condition of the okay. system is. And just, to, again, a ballpark figure, 100 space park, we've got to replace the package plant. Um, I know there's, there's some variation probably based on permitting and, you know, is it new, is it used, all these kind of factors, the size of it, the capacity of it. But are we looking at least a half million bucks? I mean, is, is, that, a, is that a good range to at least start from, of what we could expect to put a new system in? I, well... Generally, anything you do as far as a package plant would require engineering. So you'd have to get an engineer to sign off on it and or design the system. So, you know, there's ten dollars for that. So it, there's quite a bit of variation in the cost of a package plant depending on where you buy it, who you buy it from. But... I think a hundred space park you could easily be seven hundred or five hundred thousand dollars. Wow. It depends. Um it's you know it's basically you get all your capital expenditure for the next thirty years you get a bite off at once, which yeah. makes it very painful <laughs> if you do your due diligence wrong. Well I think that's the part that that's, a lot of park owners don't understand that own parks today that have, especially older owners that have owned these 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 parks with package plants and they go to sell it. They can't comprehend the idea that the next buyer is taking on a big risk and needs to really start setting aside some aggressive reserves in the event this thing should start failing. And um, I don't think most of them think. Charles, do you agree with me on that? I mean, most of them don't have that line of thought. Uh, they think that, no. well, yeah, it's low maintenance. It's worked well for the past 35 years, you know, inexpensive to run and operate. It's a it's a, it's a beauty of a system. <laughs> you need to buy this park. <laughs> 
Well, uh, package plants are the most expensive of all the wastewater treatment mm-hmm. that we're going to talk about today to operate. Okay. So okay. The, pack, the package plants, your main thing is aeration. So you're running compressors nearly around the clock. You have to have a very qualified operator um, that may need to be on site every day or at least two to three times a week, depending on your regulatory requirements. Um, a good operator can make a failing system hang on for another 10 years, and a poor operator can make a brand-new system fail, <laughs> you know, fail to meet permit conditions, and then you're just going to get into all sorts of regulatory fun, may have to add additional components to your treatment system, so if you think you can go cheap on the operator, I'm not trying to get business here. I'm just saying if you yeah. think you can get the bargain basement operator, the guy fresh out of school, and save yourself some money, you may, or it may just, uh, you know, add another couple hundred thousand dollars to your bill because you got somebody who can't run it right. Yeah. So there's no like Yelp Yelp service out there for uh, for for water system operators or waste treatment operators <laughs> that will grade you guys. There's usually you, usually you can contact the whatever the regulatory agency is in the area, and they all keep a list of contract operators, and you just want to okay. see you know how much experience they have and you know okay. that sort of thing. Anything else that we need to touch on, uh, uh, Philip, with package plants before we move on to lagoons? Well, the the benefit of the package plant is that it makes a high-quality wastewater um, and, you know, it has a small footprint. That's the benefit, those two, quali- those two things. The drawbacks are the high cost of operation – and you need to have a skilled professional to see the op- operation, high cost of replacement, and usually there's no redundancy in the system. So my guess is you're going to have to spend 1000 to $4,000 a month for an operator, you know, plus your operational costs and your maintenance costs. So for a 100-home park, it wouldn't surprise me to see your operational cost, you know, sixty to eighty thousand dollars a year. Wow! Not including capital expenditures. Um, you know, but your labor cost is a huge variable there—a thousand to four thousand a month. You know, depending on, you know, the quality of the person and your local area and what operators are going for. Mm-hmm. So, the real question is: Is that you know, if the mom and pop operator has been running to themselves and you're coming along and you're going to have to hire somebody, that's a new significant expenditure that's going to affect your bottom line. Mm-hmm. So, um, okay. you know, that's a, you know, the permit variable is pretty significant too. You know, are they going to change the conditions to your permit? Uh, the big thing coming along is nutrient removal, nitrates and phosphates. A lot of states already have those requirements in place, um, which may mean modifying your existing system, um, or you may be able to pull it off at the system you have now. Hmm. But it's pretty well known that everybody's going to have to do it, so that is something that you need to consider during the due diligence period is, can my plant adequately remove nutrients? Mm-hmm. Okay, hmm. got it. Yeah, I've got, I've got one other thing. Um, you know, we kind of, we kind of talked about not having redundancy. So sometimes these package plants that um, that could be fixed, uh, you just really don't have the operational ability to do it. Is there like a salvage value for these plants? Like if if it if it is it has an ability to be fixed, is there kind of like a market to maybe recoup some of that capital of getting a new plant or are you just, you just got an old plant now? Uh, you might be scrap metal or you may find somebody to buy it, but uh, depends on the condition. Really? A lot of times they're scrap metal. Okay. Unfortunately, <laughs> they go would to it be can, worth the package plant graveyard. <laughs> would it be worth, right. uh, would it be worth fixing? Like, I don't, I don't know. Um, 
how much it would cost to fix one of those. But uh, would it be worth maybe fixing the the old plant if it was able to be salvageable and put back into use to, just to have that redundancy or to just scrap it? Yeah, it, you could fix it, and you know, it, you know, is if it costs you, all, you know, fifty to a hundred thousand dollars to rebuild it significantly, you know, then you have a redundant system. It's going to provide you with a lot of flexibility. So, you know, I think it would be worth it depending on the condition. Okay. Sometimes you may just be able to replace part of it by, you know, setting a new tank or basin on the side of it and just, you know. You may be able to kind of cobble together and limp your system along instead of replacing the whole thing by just bringing in a new, say, a new basin for your aeration or whatever, if you have the space. The big question is, do you have the space for more equipment? Or, you know, a lot of times they like to pack the homes pretty dense in these parks, so you may not have area for a whole lot of additional, you know, tanks or basins or whatever. So that's, you know, do you have the real estate flexibility to start modifying things if you need to? Okay. Okay. All righty. So are we on to lagoons now, like the, the, the beautiful swimming pools that exist next to some of the mobile home parks that we see? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, we're on. We're on to the municipal swimming pools. They're the ones where, yeah, yeah the ones that you don't want to put a diving board on and dive into, right? Right. right. <laughs> so what? First so, off, I guess what are they? I mean, because I'm guessing that some people. I mean, until I started actually buying parks, um, I never knew what lagoons were. I mean, I, I now that I know they are, I've obviously seen them before. But I never really even right. thought, I thought it was just maybe like retention, you know, I didn't really realize it was actually waste or a waste treatment system. So give the high level view of what actual, what, what actually the lagoons really are. So there are, there are lagoons that are simply to store treated water before you can dispose of it in a stream. A lot of times in the summertime, you won't be able to dispose of treated wastewater, so you just store it. But what we're primarily talking about is a treatment system made up of ponds. So usually in the ideal world, you'd have multiple ponds, your untreated wastewater, uh, the whole enchilada would flow into the first pond, your solids would settle out, and uh, basically what's doing the treatment is you have microbes growing in there, much like in a package plant, but at a much uh, lower intensity, and then typically you have algae growing on the surface, which consumes the nutrients and provides some of the treatment and actually injects oxygen into the upper level of the water. Uh, and the wind blows and adds aeration. So essentially you have more or less two different zones in these ponds. You have the top zone, anything above four feet, up to the surface is the zone rich in oxygen where all the oxygen-loving microbes grow and the algae grows, and they consume uh, the organic material and, and nutrients. The bottom layer, uh, typically anything below four feet, is oxygen-poor, the anaerobic zone, and this is where a lot of the, the solids get uh, consumed and digested and the stink that you occasionally smell from lagoons is from a, the bacteria in the bottom level of the pond so most lagoons are less than nine feet in depth uh, as a general rule and say for a hundred acre uh, for a hundred space park you would pr just to give you an idea you would probably need uh, five acres of pond so versus a package plant, which is, you know, the, a small package plant might be 40 feet long and 12 feet wide. So, you, you know, it's huge difference in the real estate needed because all of the treatment is dependent on the atmospheric conditions driven by the wind and the sun and the microbes. Mm -hmm. So you really have very little control over the treatment and it's, you know, it's a low-cost, large-footprint way of treating waste. 
what so, is what, what are the benefits or, or i guess of, of one treatment type over the other i mean lagoons over package over over septic i mean at some point when these parks were built there was a decision that was made and you know the parks that have lagoons why would that operator or that owner have chosen a lagoon as the treatment uh type versus a septic or a package plant lagoons are you know relatively inexpensive to install you know you may um, you know, you have five acres of real estate, and they're not typically lined in the bottom, so it's just native soils. So how much did it cost to dig it and mm-hmm. put some pipes to deliver it? Okay. Versus, you know, a package plant, you know, if you pick the three hundred to 500000 neighborhood versus fifty to 100000 it's okay. a lot cheaper. You don't really... The necessity for a skilled operator on site every day isn't really there. Um, so it's an operational and initial cost issue. Okay. And they te- seem to be uh, the popularity of lagoons is pretty regional. Depends on where you are. They're really popular. Some places they don't like them. So you can also think of the lagoons uh, based on what's done with the processed waste. So really you have three options. You have full containment where all the wastewater goes into the, you know, your series of ponds. And then uh, the way it's disposed of is through evaporation. So obviously this is only going to work in areas that are pretty arid and your, your sewer flow plus your rain is less than your evaporation in the summertime. The other option is your treated waste that flows out the back of your lagoons is disposed of on-site, maybe through a leach field, maybe through irrigation. And then the other option is seasonal disposal to a water of the state, which is going to get you the NPDES type ferment. Um, so, that, you know, you need to think when you look at a lagoon is what type of lagoon is it? Uh, where is the treated waste going, the treated wastewater going? Um, okay. Is there a certain point in time where, uh, where we, have to, we run the risk of, uh, of failure with this type of arrangement? Yeah. So what people usually don't think of is all the solids that go typically into the first pond, a certain percentage of those is, uh, is consumed and decomposes at the bottom of the pond. But over time, these biosolids will accumulate, and the pond obviously is going to start to get shallower and shallower at this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have to do something with the biosolids. Um, you can dewater the pond and take them out and apply them to a field for fertilizer. But anytime you remove them off site, your additional regulatory requirements and testing requirements. To make sure there's no heavy metals or that type of thing in the biosolids before you dispose of them. So, um, you know, that's a big concern with an old pond. Before you purchase it, you should go have somebody go out there and take some core samples to see how many feet of biosolids are we dealing with. And that's basically going to give you a life cycle analysis of you know, oh, we're, we're getting pretty full here. So practically this pond is, this lagoon is just about at the end of its life. Or maybe they're really doing an excellent job of consuming all the solids coming in and there's not very much at all, mm-hmm. um, which is a, you know, a huge variation in what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. When you say it, when it's at the, it's not necessarily at the end of its life, it just means you've got to go in there and take out those biosolids, correct? Remove those biosolids. Right. Okay. So you either have to dewater it or you have to take a dredge out there. I mean, either way, dealing with, you know, a couple acres of biosolids, we're talking, you know, thousands of tons of biosolids mm-hmm. that you have to find somewhere to dispose of. Mm-hmm. It's a, you know, could be a multi-hundred-thousand-dollar project. Or it could be a $50,000 project if you had some land that you owned in the area that you could get regulatory approval to basically add it to the field as fertilizer and plow it in. 
So we can't just put an ad on Craigslist and have Billy Bob and his brother come pick it up in their pickup truck and haul it away. <laughs> no, that probably wouldn't work. <laughs> right. I bet you actually you probably would get a response, and someone would probably come do that for you if you wanted them to on Craigslist. And strange, strange people to hang yeah, out on I'm, Craigslist. What? <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay, uh, Charles. I know you've got some. You've got some burning questions inside about lagoons. Yeah. Come on. Yep. Um, as far as how do you remediate one? What does what the process usually look like? I know it's probably different for every area, but is remediation of a lagoon system, you know, once, let's say you connect the city, city sewer, for instance, and you had to remediate that, is that going to be, what, what are we looking at as far as that's concerned? So that's basically what we were talking about, the biosolids. Okay. All the sludge at the bottom of the pond that you have to now dispose of, so sometimes they'll basically let you contain it on site, and other times you have to take it off site and dispose of it in an approved field for you know fertilizer purposes, basically. So it all depends on the local regulatory climate of whether they'll let you dispose of it on site, which would basically be you leave it there, mix it with dirt, and leave it alone, or you have to take it off site. Hmm. I think you're, Charles, so you're probably asking you know, more. You're, sorry to interrupt you, Philip. Charles, you're probably asking more along the lines of like if there's like uh, if there's uh, county or city sewer hookup available. Like maybe there wasn't when the park was built, but now there is. If you're going to actually connect to uh, to the city sewer, what would you do with the plant and you know, the lagoon system if you're going to shut it down? Is that what you meant? Yeah, I mean, we we looked at a park one time where they just told us to drain the water out and they basically told us to just bury it. Um, Right, that's what I'm talking about. If you were yeah. to hook the city sewer, you have to do something with the biosolids. Okay, so you still have to remove you them. You leave them on site. Okay. You okay. can leave them on site a lot of times. Okay. Depends on the local climate. Okay, so. okay, gotcha, gotcha. All righty. Good deal. Uh, Philip, anything else that we need to know about lagoons before we, uh, before we move on? Yeah, one thing that if you're considering purchasing a park with a lagoon is you have to think about the biosolids, but you also um, have to do what's called a seepage test. A lot of regulatory agencies have been requiring this, and some are just starting to. So basically what that means is you have to um, hire an engineer or some other consultant to come out and basically measure how much of your lagoon water is infiltrating into the soil. And there's usually different uh, limits on that, depending on when the, the lagoon was constructed, et cetera, et cetera. But basically, you just don't want uh, your untreated wastewater seeping down through the bottom of your pond into the drinking water. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as part of your due diligence, you should do that test and see where you're at. Okay. All righty. Charles, anything else before we move on? No, I think that answered all the all the questions I had. Okay, um, and and so next up, what do we have? We have lift stations, which really isn't. Uh, I guess it's not really a form of uh, of treatment. But uh, Philip, why don't you give us an overview of what a lift station is and what purpose it serves? Okay, in any of the type of sewer systems we talked about, your collection piping is going to flow generally via gravity to the lowest point. Uh, on the property and hopefully your treatment takes place at the lowest point on your property. If your treatment doesn't take place at the lowest point on the property, you have to pump it from there to wherever the treatment takes place. And we call these lift stations. Um, Ideally, you would have a minimum of two pumps uh, for redundancy purposes and a backup generator and a dialer that would call out and let you know if the pumps failed. Um, The problem is sewer just keeps flowing via gravity to this lowest point. And if for any reason the pumps don't work, you're going to get sewer on the ground pretty rapidly. Um, Then you're going to most likely have all sorts of regulatory fun and potential fines by the day. So it's just one of these things that the lift station can be your best friend or your worst enemy if it's not working. Mm -hmm. So you just want to look it over really carefully. 
make sure there's redundancy, make sure there's spares on site, an adequate generator, and a dialer. Okay. Yeah, we, I know. We yeah. talked to you, Philip, about a park we have under contract. It's on City Water, City Sewer, but it does have a lift station. And uh, did not have a. You recommended that uh, it should have a a backup generator. Now the the park owner does have a generator, but it's not an automatic generator. I mean, it's kind of he like lives on site there, and he drags his generator down there should the power go out. But uh, we will be installing a backup generator and a dialer system there uh, on that on that that lift station. So, in the event that the power does go out, that way we don't have. Yeah. The- go ahead. With with a generator, you, you know, the whole point you just brought up about this park is you want an, an auto transfer switch. So if the power goes out, the generator automatically starts. And if you happen to be the mom and pop operator who's living on site and you were out for dinner, you know, the sewer didn't flow on the ground while you're out to dinner. Um, <laughs> so, you know, generator with auto transfer switch is, you know, a bare bones. Uh, requirement you'd have you'd be crazy not to do it in my opinion is there any type of due diligence that you need to be doing on a on a lift station i mean it sounds like it's pretty straightforward the pumps pumps need to be in good working order um what else are there any other things we need to be looking at well you just want to make sure the pumps are adequately sized the generator was adequately sized you know everything is you know relatively current on the wiring a lot of times, you know, the lift station was put in when the park was built in the 70s or whatever, and they have never bothered to do anything to it. So it may have been perfectly fine originally, but, you know, the wiring and everything may need to be updated mm-hmm. to make life more simple. And how about, I mean, you know, different things that some people might try to flush down their drain? I mean, are there some no-nos when it comes to lift stations? Um, what they like and dislike? Yeah, the, well, the, you know, anything that, a lot of times, there's two types of pumps you could put in a lift station. You could put what's called a grinder pump, or you could just have a normal sewer lift station type pump. Now, theoretically, a grinder pump is supposed to grind everything up, but in reality, they weren't really made for uh, things like baby wipes that are kind of, you know, it's like a fiber uh, cotton fiber thing that doesn't really pull apart. They just tend to really clog things up. Um, you know, they really tend to be the worst thing that happens to a lift station is you can get a big ball in there and it basically just stalls out the impellers mm-hmm. on the pond. So just because so. it says flushable on the label does not mean to flush it down the toilet, right? <laughs> no, feminine hygiene products, you know, baby wipes, uh, grease, all these things shouldn't be in a septic system. Even large quantities of hair, hair never really decomposes, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, people do it, and you just really, you know, trying to get people not to do it, I think, is a losing battle. Yeah, uh, yep, it sure is. I think the grease <laughs> thing is the biggest component. You know, I think that's, you know, it depends on your demographic of your park, but I know that we've got... um a large uh, Hispanic presence in a lot of our parks. And obviously that's, you know, they're, they're just, uh, uh, their culture, they, they cook with a lot of grease. They do a lot of frying. And so it's very difficult to educate people the proper way of a uh, grease disposal. And so what happens is it just goes right down the drain and it's just a matter of time until that causes a problem, you know, to where you got to jet out your lines or if you got a lift station, it's going to clog things up. Um, it's just wreak havoc, havoc on your entire system. <clears throat> Charles, anything else yeah, uh, could, about about lift stations? Because I know that we've got that park in Kentucky that we're going to be buying here soon. And um, any other thoughts that you might have on that, or any questions uh, that, are, that are floating around your head? Yeah. What, what about the uh, for this park? What had happened was he had a wastewater treatment plant in the back, so his common connection point was obviously at the back of the park at the lowest at the lowest point, and that's why this lift station had to be put in so he could he could get it over to the to the city's connection. What would you, again, if you if you were looking at a, a park that had a private utility um, and you might have the plan that if it fails, you're going to connect the city sewer, what would the typical cost of putting a new lift station in? What, what would you typically be looking at there? Uh, you could, you know, depends on your flows for the system, but, you know, 
say like a 70 space park is probably going to be around 15 to 20,000 gallons a day sort of deal. Um, mm -hmm. You could spend, you know, 30 to 50,000 dollars, maybe less, depending on how you bid it out. Um, you know, just, you know, it really depends on how high you have to pump it. Um, your cost and your motors and your electric bill is basically just de depends on how what the elevation you have to push it up is. So if you don't have but 20, you know, you have 20 feet of elevation to get it out to the city, you can have a much smaller pump. But if you had, you know, 100 feet of lift you had to do, you know, maybe you're going to need a 20 plus horsepower pump. So there's a huge variation there depending on the flow you have to push and the elevation you have to lift it up. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. And I think next we're, we'd like to talk about um, the different types of, of pipe, piping that's out there. I mean, I, and honestly, Philip, you, you sent us over a list, and I didn't realize there was this many. <laughs> I thought there was maybe like four or five, and I think you've got about seven or eight on here. So if we can maybe take a few minutes and just go through the different types of, uh, of sewer pipe, sewer and water pipes that are out there and just uh, kind of give the pros and cons of each, if you would. Yeah. If we could, right before we jump into that, we yeah. should talk about the intrusion and infiltration. Okay, sure. So when your septic parks start to get cracks in them, um, you know, inflow is when you, somebody hooks up, basically think of a downspout from a mobile home and it goes into your septic system and then you have to do something with it. Intrusion is when you have a crack in your pipe and the groundwater is such that it flows into your pipes. And then you have this additional flow you have to deal with. So the reality is um, in aging systems, you're going to have cracks in your pipe and, you know, in the pipes. And this is why you need to video your collection system. Whether or not you have private utilities, if you have city utilities, you still need to run a camera down those pipes and see what their condition is because that's going to tell you if you're going to have large, you know, intrusion problems and what the repair bill is going to be like in the future if you have lots of roots growing in there, collapsed pipes or whatever. So uh, the intrusion can really cripple your system and basically make it non-operable until you fix the problem. So as far as, you know, different States and different agencies have, you know, set different limits on what they were allow as acceptable. But this is really where you need to, you know, scope the pipes, see what kind of condition they're in, and, you know, figure out if this is something you want to be involved in, how you're going to deal with it, and, you know, just, you know, this is where you're having a flow meter in your system somewhere, uh, whether it's in the lift station or some other point, you can compare your wet weather versus your dry weather, how much uh, sewage is being produced, and get an idea of what's happening. Because the reality is there's no perfect pipe, especially in sewer, you're going to get cracks and you're going to have leaks. But you just have to be aware of it and you know decide, do you want to be part of fixing this problem? Is it going to kill you cost-wise and operation-wise? And, you know, if you do your due diligence adequately at the front end, you can decide whether you want to be a part of it at all. Mm -hmm. so. Okay. What do you think about that, Charles? Yeah. <laughs> I'm learning the bunch. Yeah. I'm learning the bunch. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> okay. Hey guys, Kevin Bupp here from the Mobile Home Park Academy. I'm very sorry for interrupting your show, but I have something really special I'd like to share with you. If you haven't heard already, Charles and I are offering something really cool here at the Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast, and I just wanted to make sure that you knew about it. We're offering a free 30-minute phone consultation with the two of us, where you can ask us anything that you'd like about mobile home park investing. Maybe you're brand new and you just have a few questions that you'd like answered. Or maybe you want to run a deal past us and have us help you walk through the evaluation process. Or maybe you're an already experienced park owner and you just want to bounce a few ideas off of us. Whatever it is, Charles and I, we're very excited to speak with you.
And there's absolutely no ulterior motive with these calls, so you don't need to worry about us trying to upsell you or pitch you on some kind of product or service. These calls are simply our way of giving back and connecting with others who share our same passion for this business. And just to reiterate, it doesn't matter if you're brand new or a seasoned investor. These calls are open to everyone, but there is one catch. It has to relate to mobile home parks. And so if you'd like to schedule that free 30-minute call with Charles and I, please send an email to freecall at mobilehomeparkacademy.com. Again, free call at mobilehomeparkacademy.com, and almost immediately you'll receive an email back with a link to our calendar. And if you haven't received that email within five minutes or so, be sure to check your junk folder, okay? Sometimes it ends up there. And when you go to schedule that time on our calendar, please include a little background on yourself as well as what you'd like to discuss on our call, but please be sure that it relates to mobile home parks. Charles and I really look forward to connecting with you, and we look forward to helping you in your journey to success as a mobile home park investor. Now let's get back to the show. You know, <clears throat> I think a lot of the parks that we've looked at, Charles, it, I guess it's just maybe the part of the country that we're in, but uh, it seems like almost all of them have had like clay tile, uh, and, and yeah. that's just notorious for for having you know cracks and leaks, tree roots growing into it, and uh, you know finding their water source. And uh, but it's easily fixable and it's it's really robust. So I don't know what what are your thoughts on that, Philip, in terms of clay tile? I feel like it's I mean it will it will essentially last forever as long as you're willing to continually go in and patch it and fix it, right? Yeah, so you have to remember there's really no perfect pipe, and yeah. every pipe has its trade-offs. So the clay tile, you know, it's pretty robust uh, until you break it, and then, you know, it's pretty much gone. So it tends to have problems at the joints, and if there's any cracks, you know, you're going to get significant root intrusion into your pipes. Um, you know, the, ca- the catch is it generally does leak at the joints. That's mm-hmm. it continual sort of problem and if the pipe was bedded in sand which you know when you lay any pipe at you know adequate and proper installations says you should put a bedding in there of sand or gravel but what this functionally does for the clay pipe is all the water that's in the groundwater catches this uh, channel of sand or gravel and follows it to the crack in the pipe and then it goes in Mm. So that's the catch with the you know the clay pipe is it's uh, if you if you have a good install on it and you're relatively free of cracking it can last basically forever. Okay, and how about cement? I've never actually uh, I've never seen cement pipes, or maybe I have. I yeah, some they're pretty popular, kind of like for culverts and that type of thing. And they also have a product that's called asbestos cement pipe. And it was pretty popular in the 60s and 70s. It was basically we're going to mix asbestos fiber with cement um, because asbestos was the wonder material for a while. Mm-hmm. Because it's resistant to corrosion was the basic idea behind it. Um, so cement and you know asbestos cement pipe basically have the same sort of issues they're prone to cracking um and if you have any shifting ground then it's going to have issues as well mm-hmm. but you know i have several systems that have asbestos cement in them and it's just a crack issue that you have to fix every once in a while okay and the next one you have on the list here is uh, cast iron. You know, it's it's kind of ironic because I just spoke with a park owner the other day in Alabama that has a has a large park, and um, he was telling me about the cast iron uh, piping he has there, and I guess it's prone to getting like pinholes in it, and he's got just a ri- ridiculous amount of uh, pinholes uh, throughout his park, and um, and to the point now where he pretty much has to re repipe his entire park because the entire system's failing. Have you heard of uh, that being an issue? Yeah, cast iron is really pretty susceptible to uh, corrosion from the sewer water. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times the cast iron pipe was actually cement lined. If it's not cement lined, you know, you'll see in the older houses, it was pretty typical in the 50s and the 60s, and even before that, that your main sewer for your house was all out of cast as well. And it's, you know, it's the corrosion that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's, that's you know, if you get 30 to 60 years 
you know, you're probably doing pretty good on cast iron. Okay. And what's next? What are some of the other ones? Uh, I see you got Orangeburg here. Well, I've, we, I've heard I've heard yeah, horror we, stories of that stuff, but I've never seen it. Oh, Orangeburg is actually pretty popular. It was an idea to save metal during World War II was when it caught on. So it's basically paper and pitch kind of rolled together. So you can imagine how well that's going to hold up. It collapses. <laughs> it, you know, it was just another brilliant idea went bad. Uh, mm-hmm. So, it's pretty much kind of, if you see Orangeburg, you better plan on replacing it all, because it's probably at the end of its life. Okay, okay. And what else do we have here on the list, uh, Philip? When did they... Uh, so we have, or, or go ahead, Charles. Yeah, when did they typically stop using Orangeburg? I've heard anything from like 1972, someone gave me that concrete date back to... Like the mid '60s was the last time you saw it. I mean, when when, when does uh, when would be the last time that you would have saw that installed? Well, it was popular during the World War II era, and you have to. I tend to think of uh, there's two different things going on. You had, you know, let's just say we had Orangeburg, um, World War II, say up to 1950, 1960. And then asbestos cement became really popular in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Of course, you may see cast iron in that same era as well, or ductile. Um, but those are the main things you kind of see. I would be surprised to see Orangeburg in the 60s, but you never know. Somebody might have found a secret stash pile of it and <laughs> decided, hey, we've got some cheap pipe, let's put it in the ground. Yeah. Okay. So basically, that might be a problem that you would see on parks that are built way back in the 40s and 50s, if they even still yeah, have I, that stuff in there. Yeah, I don't think you would see it in something built in the 60s. I would be surprised, okay. but you never know. Okay. So okay. you have uh, ductile iron pipe, which is different, basically a different way to produce the pipe, the steel. It may be cement-lined. And if it is, it's you know could be a hundred year pipe depending on your soil conditions. So ductile is really pretty good pipe, um, but you know sewers harder on things than drinking water generally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we have galvanized pipe. Um, you don't really see galvanized much in the sewer world. You see it a lot in the drinking water. Um, it was pretty popular in the 30s and even up to 1970s um, for household plumbing and even water main line. Uh, galvanized doesn't do that great in clay soils. It tends mm-hmm. to corrode out pretty fast. So, you know, if you get 40 to 60 years on galvanized, I say you're doing pretty good. Um, then you have copper pipe which we're mostly just talking about inside houses or service lines from your main line. And it's usually very good pipe, assuming your water isn't corrosive. If it's corrosive, um, you may have some lead solder issues and even some copper corrosion that, uh, you know, it's going to provide some health risk issues. Okay. Okay. And then what else do we have here? So now we're starting to get more into the modern era. We have, you know, PVC, which started to be popular pretty much in the 1980s. And if it's installed right, you know, you can get 100 years on good PVC pipe. Um, and then you have what's called high-density polyethylene pipe, and it's a black pipe that's kind of heat-welded together. Uh, really tough, really good stuff. Usually you see it on main line for water and sewer above four inches in size. You know, I doubt you're going to see any of that in the parks unless you're doing some replacement work yourself because it became popular in the 2000s. But what you do see quite a bit of is what is kind of called black poly. That's kind of a trade name. And it's basically kind of came in big rolls, uh, you know, 100, 200, 300-foot rolls, up to usually three, two or three inches in size. 
And, uh, you know, a lot of parks have that in it. And it tends to crack over time. But it was a lot of it's dependent upon how thick of the product was installed. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can it could still have some life in it, or it could be time to replace it, depending on whether they installed good quality thick material back in the day or not. But in the '60s and '70s, it was pretty popular. But once PVC came, it kind of lost popularity. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the next thing is what's called polybutylethylene, which is really, it was the newest and greatest thing in the eight, 1980s. It was kind of a, a gray, uh, flexible pipe um, that was installed in a lot of mobile homes that were made in the 80s. And it seemed there was actually a class action lawsuit against it, and they created a fun to pay for the defective pipe but in my experience either you got a good uh, good shipment of it and the whole mobile home is solid or you just got a horrible you got the bad end of the deal and you get cracks everywhere so if you're buying you know used mobile homes you might want to you know check and see what kind of pipes in it and if you're seeing basically if it's gray and flexible that's what we're talking about. And, you know, if it's not leaking, you're probably okay. But you just need to be aware that you're buying into this product that was the greatest idea at the time, but had a lot of problems. So Okay. So then we kind of come to the you know, conclusion of, or actually, no, there there is one more type of pipe. I was going to talk about, you know, what are the, what are our what are our options? Should we have uh, pipe that are failing? But we're not at that part yet. So there's one more, um, there's one more type of pipe you're going to talk about there, which is PEX. Right, PEX, which is you know, it's basically cross-linked polyethylene pipe. So it's you know, white or colored, and basically the mid two thousands it came onto the market and you can typically see it in sizes up to inch and a half um it has good expansion properties so it's you know this is the newest thing and you know time will tell whether it was a dud with some of the other options or whether it's gonna hold up and be an excellent product but you're probably not going to see it unless you're putting brand new homes in your part Mm -hmm. okay and then so Back to what I was about to mention there is uh, what happens uh, when we have failures. I mean, are there alternatives? I mean, so the one option is to dig up everything, right? But are there, are there alternatives to digging up and replacing all the all the sewer pipe that might be in the park or all the water pipe that might be in the park? Do we have any other options? Yeah, there's a couple different options out there in what we call the trenchless world. So basically, there's what's called pipe bursting where basically you send an expander head through your existing pipe and it basically just, you know, busts it out like a can opener, just spreads it, and you then you, as you're doing that, you pull a pipe behind it and you basically have a brand new pipe pulled through. Um, it's a pretty good system. It's, you know, it has its cost, but it's generally less expensive than digging everything up. The catch is, you know, what are you going to do with your sewer and water flow while you do this? Obviously, you're breaking the pipe, so you can't use it. So are you going to, your options are, can you temporarily plumb something in? Or do you have to basically, you know, uh, take a whole bunch of houses offline and make them, you know, unoccupiable for a few days or a week or whatever it takes to do it? That's kind of a painful option if you, you know, basically make a bunch of houses uninhabitable. So that's that's a big drawback in my mind, the what do you do while you're doing it sort of deal, you know? Mm-hmm. Hmm. hmm. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be kind of the same thing, though, if you had to dig up and replace entire sections at one time as well? You put some well, ideally, out you would... Yeah, you could put outhouses, or you could just lay a new pipe <laughs> yeah. right next to the old one, and then ideally you could do it all in one fell swoop, and it would. Okay, uh, I got you. Be a little faster, you know. Mm-hmm. Put outhouses. The houses. other trenchless, <laughs> yeah. 
I know of a, a person who bought a park. I think it was a 30 space park. And uh, the water utilities and the sewer lines just basically died within a couple months after he bought it. So the solution was we're going to empty the whole park and re-put utilities in it. Oh, my gosh. And, and, you know, and I look at the aerial maps and I see that, you know, there's now five homes in it. And this is 15 years later, you know, it was emptying emptying a park to replumb it is you know that you better just not even buy that park if oh that's a that's a bad that idea you never want to empty a park yeah. in general i mean if you got to make the people move out that's the only reason you bought it is because they were living there so right yeah so the other trenchless option would be directional drilling where you would basically uh drill under the ground and pull a pipe behind it um it's similar in cost to the pipe bursting, I would imagine. There are a few technologies out there where you can spray epoxy lining in the pipe. I'm, I don't know, I haven't, you know, I see the rave reports, but I haven't experienced it firsthand, so I'm a little hesitant to recommend it. Okay. So. Well, good deal. Well, uh, you know, there's when we start thinking about these parks that have private utility systems, you know, and when Charles and I start looking at them, like in our mind, we think that okay, we need to be buying this thing. You know, if it's a if, if we think it's in an eight cap market, well, then we need to be buying this thing at a nine and a half cap, right? Right. I mean, there's there's some kind of a additional risk that comes along with purchasing that park, and so we need to get some kind of uh, added premium from from buying it and i know that you kind of mentioned something in your notes here regarding that so i mean what are you seeing out there in terms of um uh what additional premiums a park buyer might have when you're comparing apples to apples if you got one park that's 100 space park that's got city utilities versus one that's got private utilities on it um any thoughts on that yeah, I'm out on the crazy West Coast. and Yeah, everything's know, a crazy of, out there. <laughs> right. So just to give you a rough, an example, like you could, you know, there's decent city parks going for six caps, um, six, you know, and uh, pretty, if you were uh, on private utilities, you're seeing eight and ten caps. Wow. Um, big, big, people are trying wow, that's to, huge. If, if you're seeing... You know, uh, I see some parks that are basically private utilities at, you know, a six, seven cap, and they're not selling, you know. But Mm -hmm. to me, I think you should have a couple points spread, but it really is your own personal risk tolerance, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And there there is a significant headache factor if you get that call, from your manager that your lift station has failed and we got sewer on the ground. And at that point, it's not really an option. You got to do something and you got to do something fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got additional capital reserves you have to have on hand plus the risk factor plus the headache. Mm-hmm. And that's why people stay away from it, you know, is that. It's scary if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Charles, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's that's perfect. You also should be, you know, getting a return off of your uh, additional capital that's, that's sitting there. I mean, I guess they could kind of build in that as well. But, yeah, private utilities, I think you should definitely get a premium of at least at least one or two points on your, on your cap rate. Mm-hmm. You know, we looked at a park up in Florida. And it's still kind of on our books a little bit, but it's um, it's got a package plan in it, and uh, it's an older park, but it's big. It's about 200 spaces in size, uh, but the system's old. And, um, you know, the only way that deal works for us is if we actually, if we can buy it for what we are willing to pay for it today based on some very attractive terms as well, uh, we know that we can aggressively, uh, we've got enough cash flow uh, after debt service and all expenses that we can aggressively put aside the necessary reserves in a, uh, you know, in a five to eight year period of time to essentially replace that, the package plant should it fail. 
And um, I think, but well, we got to buy the park right. I mean, we got to buy it at a really low price and have some very nice terms attached to it. Otherwise, the deal just doesn't work. You know, the, the risk is too big to take it on. <clears throat> Charles, you know which one I'm talking about, correct? Yep. 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 So. Yep. For me, you know, the terms are as important as the purchase price. And, you know, it seems uh, pretty probable that a lot of private utilities, if you go to sell them, you're going to have to carry the contract. Um, That seems to be, you know, at least what I'm seeing is a lot of parks are offering that um, to kind of make people more comfortable with buying it, is willing to carry the paper on it. Mm Mm-hmm. So on the exit, you kind of have to keep that in mind as well, especially with lagoons. They have such a black eye that, you know, unless the prices are so favorable, I think you're probably going to have to think about carrying the paper as well. Yeah. Yeah. So so those uh, all have to be considerations. That's a good point. I mean, you always got to think about your exit going in, you know, like how are you going to get out? Even if you think you're a long-term buyer that's going to hold on to it forever, you've got to think about how am I going to get out of this when the time comes, if the time comes, you know? And um, I don't know. I really don't have – I like buying parks with owner financing, but I don't think I really would have an interest – in, uh, in actually carrying financing on a park that I'm selling, you know, I, uh, typically I would have another place to put that money, and so I would just want to be out of it and be over and done with it. Um, and so that, that you bring up a very good point there, <clears throat> Charles. Any more thoughts? Yeah, I did. I don't know. I don't know where it went though. There was another one that I was going to. Oh, um, what are your thoughts on only buying these parks that have private utilities? If if uh, that you only buy it if you can actually connect to the municipal uh, system. What, what are your thoughts on that on that line of thinking? Well, that's the premium option there, but there's right. a lot of parts out there that don't have that option. So you're just cutting out a significant portion of the available parks in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, there's two ways to think about it. The, my first thought is, you can replace wells, you can replace lagoons, you can replace package plants, assuming you have enough space. And there's a lot of parks out there that they're small, you know, small parks, they have high densities, and there's nowhere to put a replacement well. Um, there's nowhere to put a replacement septic system. So those parks, what are your options? You can't connect to city sewer city water there's really no real estate so you're in trouble right but if you have adequate real estate that's you know that solves a lot of problems mm-hmm. so you know that's as important as you know anything else if you don't have the real estate and you need to replace something what are you going to do take out half of your homes to you know do something that's a bad that's just a bad decision right there. Yeah, yeah, it is. Hey, I, I mean, we see that quite often with parks in here in Florida. Um, very, very high density parks, uh, shared septic type arrangements to where, you know, the homes are small, they're tight together, they're built 70 years ago. And, you know, should you have any type of failure um, to where that, you know, the leach field would fail or something of that sort, I mean, you're probably going to lose three or four homes if you got to put another one back in. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're going to you're going to lose a bunch of home sites, and that's scary. And um, there's a lot of parks in here in Florida just like that. Yeah, it's not really an if, but a when. Yeah. When is something going to fail? And then if you have your density is so high and you have no free real estate, you know, you just start taking homes out, mm-hmm. which destroys your bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, you don't want to be in a park business if you're actually taking homes out of the park. You're supposed to be bringing them in, right? <laughs> right. Okay. Well, Philip, we really appreciate you coming on the show today. I mean, I know that I've learned a ton. I'm sure, Charles, you have as well. Yep. And you'll be, how, is there anything else that that's lingering out there that we might not have asked you that might be very important and just critical for our listeners to know as it pertains to private water and sewer systems? I think the big thing is just, you know, creating a legitimate capital expenditure budget mm-hmm. and knowing you know knowing what it costs you per lot to run your water and sewer and 
can you pass it through or are you absorbing it in your lot rent? But really having a legitimate number, not just some, this is what the guy before me sort of number did, but, you know, inventorying everything, putting a legitimate today's replacement cost value on it and, you know, running the numbers. This is, you know, it's a business. You're supposed to run it like a business and, you know, everything should be accounted for. Mm-hmm. Okay. Charles, any last uh, any last thoughts before we say goodbye to Philip today? No, I just wanted to, I wanted to thank you for coming on to the show. I mean, I, I've learned a ton, so I really wanted to thank you for that. Yeah, well, thanks this, for having me on. Yeah, no, this has been incredible, uh, Philip. I mean, you, you spent a lot of time with us, and uh, um, and just so those that are listening in, I mean, Philip, I mean, he took two hours out of his day to to come here on the show with us, and uh, this is really. This is the most encompassing uh, amount of information I've seen yet on private utilities. I mean, what we discovered here with you today. So we just really appreciate your time and your knowledge and your wisdom and everything else that you've shared with us. And uh, for those that are listening in, to, to reach out to, to Philip and learn more about, about his company, you can go visit him at MerrillWater.com. Again, that's Merrill. It's M-E-R-R-I-L-L Water.com. Or you can uh, shoot him an email. His uh, his direct email is info at MerrillWater.com. Again, info at MerrillWater.com. And Philip, that's all we have for today. Really appreciate your time, and um, look forward to keeping in touch with you. And uh, you know, uh, just I've learned everything I can possibly. I think my brain's on it's it's on overload <laughs> at this point. So I don't think I can fit anything more into it. <laughs> so you have a wonderful day, and you take care. And uh, we'll look forward to chatting again soon. Yeah, talk to you guys soon. Congratulations for taking the necessary steps to achieving massive success through the highly lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. Be sure to visit our website, mobilehomeparkacademy.com, to download your free digital ebook version of the 21 biggest mistakes investors make when buying their first mobile home park and how you can avoid them. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to our free monthly mobile home park investing newsletter which is jammed full of valuable tips, tricks, and strategies to help you accelerate your path to success as a mobile home park investor. More information about this podcast and its hosts can be found by visiting mobilehomeparkacademy.com.